There's no perfect way to do caregiving. You, you just try and you try and you fail and you keep on trying. We were left alone. Um, we had no support around us. It was her and I and we were each other's support. Hi, I'm Bobby. And I'm her husband, Mike. And this is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years. And since then, I've become a certified caregiving consultant and a certified caregiving educator. And I was a secondary caregiver for my father. And since that time, I've become a certified caregiver advocate. Here, we're going to focus on the caregiver. We're going to offer our practical insights and share some emotional support. Maybe we'll even share a few laughs along the way because we all know that laughing is, in fact, the best medicine. And you give me ample opportunities to laugh, but don't forget the wine. Oh, no, never forget the wine. (laughs) So, Bobby, do you remember my dad's diagnosis day? When he was diagnosed with dementia, I sure do. It was another long day at the VA hospital in Martinsburg, being called in to see another doctor on after he already had a litany of doctors, and I thought, what is going on now? And when they gave him the cognitive test and they said, dementia, I, I was overwhelmed. I thought, more? There's more to take care of here? And where is that going to take us? And how am I going to manage it? Yeah, I remember that day. And you say more because we were already dealing with a whole litany of other medical issues prior to the diagnosis of the dementia. So let us bring in our guest. She is a host of her own podcast, but today she is here to get some firsthand advice from us since she and her family are also facing dementia. Please welcome to our very first episode on Roger That, Ms. Louise Solace. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. And I'm just really grateful to be here with you today. Um, I, like many others, I'm sure my father or my father-in-law, like you, Bobby, um, is facing dementia, and the family is struggling and looking for that beacon of hope and some answers. And it's it's a, a whirlwind. It's it, people uh, listening to you is exactly the same. You had no idea um, where to go or what to ask or what it means. If you could go back on that day that you just spoke about, is there any one thing that you wish you knew you know now that you knew then? Oh, there's so much <laughs> that I wish I yeah, knew. Really, I wish I knew then what I what I know now. Um, I wasn't even sure what the term dementia meant and how that was going to impact his behavior and my responses to it. And that's one of the things that happens so frequently with people who are all of a sudden faced with a diagnosis of dementia for a husband or a spouse or a parent, a parent, a child even, uh, with the onset of early onset dementia that's hitting people younger and younger People are going to be taking care of their siblings, and they don't understand what dementia is. And I wish that I had understood that you can find out about this before you have to deal with it. And and what 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 is it then? 
Dementia. As simple as that. You know, in one in two words, can you tell me what dementia is? <laughs> no. <laughs> Short answer. Yeah. <laughs> that is such an interesting question, and it also parallels with a frequent one. What's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? And dementia is a devastating brain disease that some people think it it just affects your memory. And that's one of the first signs of dementia. But because we're talking about the brain, we're talking about a disease that affects not only memory, but sight, hearing, swallowing, the way things taste, the ability to reason, balance. What's Cause and effect. You're... Oh, like uh, the ramifications of your actions, the loss of a no, yeah. Now, when people ask me what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia, Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. Oh. And there are several different forms of dementia, including Lewy body dementia, which Robin Williams had and died from. Oh. And um, there's vascular dementia. There's frontal lobe dementia. There's about 26 different types of dementia. And then we bring in traumatic brain disease, which also affects that. And now they're calling diabetes another form of dementia because the vascular changes in somebody with severe diabetes it affects their cognitive ability and it affects their brain oh how interesting of course it does how could it not where it's all connected yeah and also like robin williams might we found out later that my dad actually had the lewy body dementia wow and how does that affect one well one of the things that it does is People with Lewy body dementia often react exactly the opposite to medications given to people with Alzheimer's. Oh. So, and even though we didn't know that dad had Lewy body dementia, we knew that when he was given a medication, we could expect it to react exactly the opposite of what it was supposed to do. And they still continued to diagnose or uh, prescribe the meds? Um, some of them they had, they changed and some of them they took away and some he had to, he had to continue with, but we didn't, we did not actually get the diagnosis of Lewy body until after he died when we got his, um, medical records. Yeah. We got, uh, the whole two boxes of medical records from the veterans administration and going through those records is where we saw the Lewy body dementia for the first time. And Lewy body happens to be the second fastest growing form of dementia right now. And wow. And that affects you how differently how? I mean. Um, it's a different process that's killing the brain than what happens oh, in gotcha. Alzheimer's. But the behaviors are very much the same. There's a lot more delusions in Lewy body than there is in standard Alzheimer's. Wow. Wow. Lucky you, huh? Well, couple that with... The prior diagnosis, we talked about other medical issues with my dad, but couple that with the fact that he was diagnosed back in the 40s or the, thir- yeah, the 40s uh, as a paranoid schizophrenic. So you you couple that with the schizophrenia and you don't know where the Lewy body dementia begins and the schizophrenia ends. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I can imagine. How did he come to live with you? That was interesting. Um, it was 2002 and we had just become... Uh, empty nesters. And we were 
going to move from a townhouse that we had lived in for quite some time and build our dream home where we could have our grandchildren come and stay with us. But we were looking forward to doing some traveling and just enjoying life. And while the house was under construction, I looked at the the laundry room that was on the first floor. And I said, you know, we could turn this into a shower one day, thinking somewhere in the future, one or more of our parents is going to need help and we will have the place to bring them. Not knowing that before that house was finished, both of our mothers had died within nine weeks of each other. And the first thing anybody said was, what's going to happen to to Roger? Yes, and to us, it was just a no-brainer. He, he's coming with us. He, he's going to come to us, and we will take care of him. Were you the, are you an only child? No, actually, I have a younger brother, and um, my dad also has a, a younger brother. But to us, it was just natural. We looked at the house, said we can put one of those prefabricated shower stalls here. The water hookup is already here. There's a room on the first floor in the case of my mother and her mother, which is who we thought we would be taking care of at some time in the future, that they wouldn't be able to make steps. So the den could be a bedroom. There's a powder room right off of it. Yeah. And the shower stall down the, down the hall. With all you need is a bathrobe. Yeah. And lo and behold, both of our mothers gone, and my dad, enter my dad. Yeah. And so... Funny how the universe has a different plan for you, huh? Well, yeah. Well, we thought it was going to be easy. At at least I did. I thought it was going to be easy. (laughs) Yes. Because even though he'd been my father-in-law for 15 years, we didn't live close to him. And he was extremely introverted when we would go to visit. So I really didn't know him. But I didn't expect that um, there would be any difficulties. In fact, I thought when he came into my house... (laughs) He'd thrive. <laughs> and, I'm sure he did. Well, <laughs> sure. Well, no doubt. The impetus of that was my mother was um, very boisterous, very loud, as Bobby would say, lived by exclamation points. <laughs> Everything <laughs> was great. magnified 30, 40 times. You get a paper cut. Oh, I nearly cut my finger off. Yeah, bump your head. I got a lump the size of a grapefruit. And, and and so she lived by these exclamation points. And she had very strict ways of doing things. And if my dad ventured outside of that, just way out, just wiggled outside the, the straight line just a touch, it, the sky was falling. So we figured we're not that person. We're yeah. very low key. We're very laid back. We don't let a lot of stuff bother us. So Bobby says, He's going to thrive here. And we really, really did think he would. Remember, I said, oh, it'll be difficult at times, but we've got this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we, we did have it. <laughs> and it was difficult. <laughs> I'm sure. So the whole time he lived with you until his last days then? He lived with us one week past seven years. It was seven years, one, wow. one week. Wow. He died with us on either side of him on his 83rd birthday at home. Oh, that's lovely that you were able to give that to him, though. It's one of the things that was important to him. He told us he wanted to die at home, and we were going to do what we could to make that happen. Now, that's not right for everybody, but it it was right for us. So you give this advice to many people, though, right? You travel about, I mean, tell me about what you do um, 
what is this that, that Roger inspired you to do? Well, knowing how difficult it was and knowing that I had no idea how difficult it was, I really wanted to make sure that I did what I could to, su- to support caregivers. And the first thing that I did was answer that call when caregivers that I did talk to said, I wish somebody would write a book that said what it's really like. And I did that called Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. What, what, what's the main crux of that book? Well, there's no perfect way to do caregiving. Like, I, like I've said before, um, you, you just try and you try and you fail and you keep on trying. Um, when I first thought of it, I thought it was, I was going to call it Confessions of an Inadequate Caregiver because I felt <laughs> like I had failed. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's imperfect and it, it reads like a novel, but every word is true. And um, I, I'm really proud of that. And then I, because of the book, I started speaking in the local community about that and about caregiving. And then um, the Alzheimer's organization was looking for somebody to lead a caregiver support group in our community. So I went and I trained with them and, and I did that. Um, and the more speaking I did on it, the, the more opportunities I got and eventually began to speak on the national. And, and then last year in Toronto became an international Speaker. Look at you, international, international, <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> That's great, though. So I, I actually, I've been living this, starting with Roger coming to live with us in 2002 up until now. One of the things, Louise, is that she's been a writer all her life. And so that writing that book just came naturally. And the... Um, the catalyst for that was people saying to her, her hearing people say all the time, I wish somebody would write what it's really like. Yeah. So there are moments in there when um, neither one of us are at our best. Yeah. And um, I was sharing the portions of it as I was writing it with my local caregiver support group. And, and one of the fellows says, Bobby, you sound really selfish there. And I said, Good. Yeah. I'm so glad. And um, my sainted husband over here, um, <laughs> there were moments when he was a real jerk. I'm sorry, he was. And so I asked him, can I put that in there? And where he gets the saint is he said, yes, you can do that. <laughs> if, if it's there to help people and to understand that they are not crazy, what they feel is real. Yeah. And most caregivers feel that they have to have the truth. It can't be all unicorns, butterflies, and rainbows. Yeah. Yeah. And truthfully, that time period, you know, Mike and I have been married for 32 years, and we really like each other, and we really love each other. But that period of time, we fought more than we ever had before or since because the stress got so intense. Oh, I bet. I bet. How could it not? If you're feeling like you're failing, but then trying to take on something that's so daunting and so difficult, how could you not? And part part of that came from, we were left alone. Um, We had no support around us. It was her and I, and we were each other's support. Yeah. And when I'm being a jerk um, in those instances, then she's even more isolated and more... Yeah weight on her shoulders. Yeah, more resentful, I'm sure. I'm sure. Speaking of resent, I um, sat and I was feeling bad because she was at home taking care of my dad. Yeah. 
And I felt that I'm the one that should have been doing that. And here she is back at the house. And your resentment was? He gets to leave. Yeah. <laughs> he gets to talk to sane, north, nat, uh, rational people. He gets to go out to lunch. Um, he gets to be out in the world. And even on the weekends when he wasn't working, he was out getting the groceries. He was running the errands. He was getting the car inspected. So he was doing a great deal of work, but we both had our own jobs and we all, both had our own resentments over what the other person was doing. <laughs> so in our family, obviously we're at the very beginning stages of understanding what all this means. Is there somewhere that you go just to start, like what are some things that help a family prepare? Like you said, prepare for what you don't know to prepare for. It's so important to be educated at this as, as soon as you possibly can. And one of the things is to recognize your own mortality and that of your family members and sit down and talk with your parents about what they see their future is and what they want to happen. Do they want to be kept at home? Do are um, Do they want to be in a care facility because they don't want to be a burden? And the fact of the matter is there's no wrong answer there. What do you do if they don't want to do either? State, you mean they want, they to, want stay to stay in their own home? home? Um, if it's possible, you know, to bring in live-in care and you can afford it, that's that's one thing that you can do. But if they don't want to do either, then there comes a point where you're, you're, you're going to have to make the choice for them. And that happens frequently. Somebody knows that they can no longer care for someone with dementia and they have to go into a care facility. It could be dangerous for both of them. Yeah, to have that person stay there uh, for a number of reasons. People with dementia often get aggressive or they just, I'm not listening to you. You're my child. I'm your mother. I ha- I have no- I'm not going to pay attention to you. And you, you need professionals to take care of them. And you're going to have to make that choice as difficult as it is for both of you and make that happen. And one of the things is if you have made the statement, I promise I'll never put you in a care facility, bear in mind that what you're really saying is, I'm going to get you the best care that we can possibly get for you. You haven't failed them. Yeah. You're just not the best care. Yeah. At at some point, it comes that you have to do that. So release that guilt if you have said that in the past. And if you haven't, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Say, I'm going to get you the care. I'm going to make sure you have the best care possible. Yeah. And I would imagine that's good for the caregiver, the person, I mean, uh, the, the one who is going to be the responsible one to be able to find a, 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 re- a relief valve on that guilt. Yeah. Because I would, uh, I mean, uh, I, he's not, uh, my father in law is not living in our home, but I can imagine that there's got to be guilt in that. Like, uh, my husband feels guilty that he doesn't live in our home, that mm-hmm. his sibling is taking care of him. But then, um, yeah, which is so complicated. It's such, such a complicated space. Yes. One of the worst situations is to have somebody in a facility because it's dangerous to have them in your home and they act out aggressively and you get a call from the facility that says he can't stay here anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then rock or hard place, what do I do here? I bring him into my home and I'm in danger, but he can't be there. So very often they end up in a psychiatric ward. Wow. Which is so sad. Yeah. And a lot of times what happens is they don't, 
they don't understand the cause of the behavior. Sure. Um, instances of um, somebody in a facility taking a walk around this the, the area and they're pulling the fire alarms all the time. And so they say, you know, this person can't be here because there's all these false alarms to the fire company. Instead of trying to understand why they yeah. pull the fire alarm and you ask the person, and the person says, well, I walk by there and it says, pull me. Yeah. Something as simple as that. And it could be something as simple as that. Not always. Yeah. Maybe half the time. But a lot of times it's look at what the behavior is and address the behavior or the cause of the behavior as opposed to give them more drugs. Yeah. Well, it's a society we're in now, unfortunately, right? Right. Well, behavior is communication. Think of it as a two-year-old having a tantrum. They're telling you, I'm wet, I'm uncomfortable, I'm hungry, I'm tired. The same thing happens to adults yes. at yes, that yes, point. Yes. And so that fits in exactly what you're saying. You address the behavior. And I, I, and this might be a little like outside the scope, of, but you, ha- you did paperwork, I'm sure, like legal paperwork. Interesting right? that you should bring because that up. Because we're kind of digging around in that right now. So my... My grandmother, my dad's mother, who lived to be 102 years, eight months. Wow. And she lived close by, and my dad always walked over to her house, and he was there at lunchtime every day. He called her two or three times a day, and and so on. But when she passed away, there was not any power of attorney in place. So to get the money that was set aside for a funeral for her, he had to go through a whole bunch of wickets, and that really left a, a mark on him. Even though we um, we were in a very small town and everybody knew everybody, you have the rules yep. at the bank. Yep. And um, so he was very adamant when he walked in the door, we need to get a power of attorney. We need to get the joint bank accounts so that you don't have to go through that. So he was a sound mind enough to even to know and remember that in, yes. in the beginning, I would assume? Yes, and he was very, very adamant on that. So we got the power of attorney, and we also got medical power of attorney. And because she was the 24-7 caregiver, she was designated as the primary um, medical power of attorney, and I was a secondary medical power of attorney um, from the business right? Life insurance, those type of things. I was the primary power of attorney because that's where our, our, our talents, our skill sets were and the the divide and conquer, if you will. Sure. Absolutely. So powers of attorney are very important. Advanced medical directives are very important. And you do that through a lawyer, I'm assuming, correct? Like an elderly? You, you can do that, but there's- Elderly care lawyer, is that what that is? Elder care, yeah. yeah. There's plenty of online boilerplates that oh. you can massage and then basically just take them to your local notary. Really? And get them notarized. That's that's all that we did. That's really important to know because I'm, I'm sure a lot of people struggle with the financial part of yeah. it. Yeah. And especially if you're going to reach into their bank account to pay for their care. Yeah. Um, it's, it's also very important to have those things in place so that somebody can't come back to you after the fact and say, well, you just took the money or you did this or you did that without approval. So those type of things are extremely, extremely important to have in place. Advanced medical directive, powers of attorney, financial powers of attorney, um, those type of things are imperative. Um, a do not, do not resuscitate also, a DNR. Oh, yes, yes, oh. yes, yes, DNRs. That was something that was very important to him. If I'm gone, I'm gone. Yeah. 
don't poke me, prod me, cut me open. Yeah. And again, he was um, late 70s. He'd been sick for a long time. And he says, you know, I, I don't want to go through that. Yeah. He had had a valve replaced in his heart. I don't want to go through that. Let me go. So... And those are difficult conversations. I would say those to are have. very difficult those conversations. Are really incredibly difficult. difficult. Yeah. How do you get a caregiver to ask for help? Well, that's interesting. Um, a lot of people, when they understand that you're a caregiver, will say to you either to be polite or because they really want to help, but they don't know what to do. Um, and we have a tendency in our polite society to say, "I'm okay. I don't need help," or "I'm fine." Did you do that? Um, Yes. I did. I absolutely did. Now I tell people if somebody asked if they can help, give them a job. Yeah. And I and it doesn't matter what the job is. It can be very simple. It, it can become and sit with me for a half hour every two weeks. So I have some social interaction or I can take a shower and not have to worry about what the person I'm caring for is doing while I'm in the shower. Um, it becomes as basic as that. Or if you're, if you're going to the store, call me and see if I need anything. Anything that you you can do to take some of that burden off. You may not be able to come in the house and actually be a caregiver for any length of time, but you, every little bit helps. Bring but, a meal over once a week. But the best thing to do is start putting that caregiver team together before you need it. And we have we sat down and we we have four children. Um and they all have different personalities. It's important to decide which person that you want to be the decision maker because if you have more than one sibling or even if whoever the other family members might be, somebody has to be the one that makes the decision. Yeah. Now, my oldest daughter is wonderful. She has she has the biggest heart in the world. She would she would definitely take care of me, but she's not in a position to do that. And our two sons live far away. So our youngest daughter, Kelly, is the person that we have designated to make decisions for us. So we do what we can to educate her as we go along, what it is that we want. And actually, Mike took her down and showed her where all the paperwork is. And we've let her know what our decisions are. And we have that in writing. So it takes those tough decisions when it comes to a point of, excuse the expression, but pulling a plug. Yeah. It, you don't have one family member saying, no, 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 and the other one saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. This it. is what they wanted. And it, and it, ho the hope is to eliminate that strife between them. Yeah. Because caregiving has pulled so, so many families apart because of the stress that goes along with it. But honestly, looking at that, I mean, that should we should all have that. One, we're not promised today. That's and right. It, age, obviously, it plays another factor into it. But I mean, honestly, we're not. I mean, that's wise words yeah. either way. Well, I was at my doctor's office not too long ago, and they asked me if I had a living will. And I said, do you, all, do you ask that to old people? <laughs> 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 and she said, no, we asked that to everybody because you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And th that made me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not getting carded anymore. You're like, what? Why not me? <laughs> no, she gets carded. She, she got carded about, a, uh, what was that, about a year ago, two years yes. ago? Yes. <laughs> I call that charity work now. <laughs> Thank you for doing your charitable work today. No, I said, I'm old enough to be your grandmother. Let me in. <laughs> and he said, unless you have ID, no, you can't come in and wouldn't let her in. So I, 
I know that there are times with people with dementia who they, they as it goes further on, they begin to lose even the ability to recognize their own children, their own siblings, their own. And if you're that caregiver and it's your mother and she's saying, you know, she doesn't recognize you, how do you help a caregiver deal with that? Like the I, fact that you're not being, not only are you not appreciated, you're not even being recognized by the one person, the person that you've dedicated your life to taking care of. I talked to my to my daughter about that because this is one of the things that breaks the heart of somebody that's caring for a parent when they look up and they don't know who you are. And what's actually happened is as the memories go away and the brain becomes damaged, they go back in time. So if I look at my 40-year-old daughter and in my mind she's 12, yeah. I don't recognize that woman. And so what I've told my daughter to do is if that time comes and I don't recognize you, please smile, tell me your name, and share some memories of your mother. And she said, well, that's not going to happen to you, but I'll share that with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And it's important for the caregiver to really, really understand that they're not recognizing you at your age now. Sure. They know you as the 12-year-old or the 8-year-old or the 13-year-old, not the 40, not the 50. So if you have photographs that you can share of the two of you at that time that they remember you in, and you might get some really powerful memories. Yes. Yes, they can take you down memory lane that you didn't even know the lane existed. I guess it gives you that ability to still connect. Even yes. though it may be not where you want to be, but unfortunately, yes. you, you probably aren't ever going to get that. And we, we've had another conversation about that that looks at it from a different angle. I was married before Mike to a man who was emotionally abusive, alcoholic. So I'm thinking if I get dementia and I go back in time to I'm married to him and I don't recognize Mike, What's that going to do to Mike? Yeah. Now, we've talked about it. Yes. He understands it could happen, but I know it's going to break his heart if that happens. Yes, but I also know that it's the disease, not you. No. Stop it. You make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a jerk, Mike. (laughs) Sometimes you know too much. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you know too much. I have to tell you, every time I forget a word in the middle of a sentence or something that I have done for a long time, I have to stop and think (laughs) about doing it. I think, is it happening? I just assume it's I have had too much wine that day. (laughs) Wine? You said wine? (laughs) (laughs) Magical words. I sometimes tell people I have so much in my head that every now and then something falls out. I remember the time she couldn't remember our daughter's name. And she was like, oh, oh, my God, I can't remember her name. And I said, honey, when they were little, you couldn't remember their names. (laughs) (laughs) You went through the whole list, right? And I was included in there. (laughs) Yeah, my mother was classic. She'd go to every kid's name before she got to yours. And the dog. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd rather be called the dog. (laughs) Mike, was there um, a point... I'm sure there was. Um, is there a po- one of those points with your dad that you look back now, and at the time I'm sure it was really, really hard, but you look at it now and go, that was such a cherished moment. 
Opera. He's oh. gonna cry. Oh. <laughs> Mike, you make me cry. <laughs> Quid pro quo. <laughs> I'm a very sensitive person, but my dad loved opera. And so I would get opera DVDs and, of course, CDs, but DVDs were really good too because it gave him something visual also. And so I would put the DVDs on and, um, there was one by Andrea Bocelli. And we would sit for hours. Put it on again. Put it on again. It's like a, like a little kid, right? Um, but on that DVD, he it goes through the Tuscany province and different concerts within the Tuscany province. And they show some of the sites. And my dad would start talking about the historical significance of this statue or the Trevi Fountain or this or that. Oh, that's amazing. And would hit the the pause button and just let him go and take us down that journey. path. Yeah. And he would go down there. And so this 80-minute DVD sometimes took two and a half hours because he would go down these paths. And... It was so powerful. Yeah. Um, just listen to his memories and not their mine. Yeah, they are. It's that gift that you, you got, that you received, that you didn't anticipate. He was such an introvert. I wonder, I, and this is it's not a fair, even observation, that I wonder if he hadn't had the the mental challenges he had being such an introvert, if you would have those, have those moments to share now. There's no way to tell. There's no, no way, way, to, way tell. to tell. No, but I'm glad we had him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it, it feels like a nugget that I should take back to my family and just say, try to find that light in those very dark moments because they're there. But I point at in the dark in the I mean, you I I'm singing to the choir I'm sure in those darkest moments it's really hard to see through that and a lot of times you don't realize it until later on yeah hindsight and you say you know what that was pretty darn cool yeah that those, was pretty darn cool those are the gifts that you get once it's over with when you can pause Breathe. and reflect and treasure which is one of the reasons why I say it was a gift I didn't know I wanted yeah. Well, it changed your life mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, the immediate and then now. Yeah. And now you go out and you help people all the time. And, um, Mike, I am so glad that you shared that because I know that there are a lot of people out there who are going to be touched by this story and be able to see that these unexpected moments do come in caregiving and just wait and let the magic happen. There's probably going to be some more <laughs> later on because looking back, and we are 10 years later since he's passed. We just wow. hit his 10-year anniversary. And I look back a lot. Yeah. I'm sure. How could you not? You said it was a gift that you didn't. Didn't quite anticipate, and no. I'm sure in the in the in those hard moments, it was probably hard to see that. Though I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. I thought 
is this never going to end? And I can't do this another minute, let alone another day. And I would go to church and cry and pray and lay awake at night trying to figure out what to do the next day and if I could do it the next day. And it led to some very dark moments. But one of the light moments, tell her about the priest, Father Kelly. Oh, I had been going around for the longest time saying to myself and saying to Mike, why does it have to be so hard? Why is it hard to do good work? I don't understand. Why is this so hard? And so we we went into church, and the priest got up, and he started to talk, and he said, you know, I've been hearing a lot from people about why life is so hard. And I got goosebumps. I got absolute goosebumps. And I looked up and I said, you heard me, huh? (laughs) And uh, he said, I'm here to tell you, nobody ever said it was supposed to be easy. None of the saints had it easy. What you're doing is you're earning your place in heaven. So I took that, and on a really tough day, a lot of times Mike would come in, and I'd be standing there at the door tapping my foot saying, I earned my place in heaven today. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Well, you know, I guess you got to earn your keep, huh? (laughs) Speaking of Mike, did you bring the wine? (laughs) Uh, No, but there's a bottle waiting for when we get home. Um, Anything else, Louise, that you think we should touch on? No, I just, it just... It's great to hear your stories. It's um, it's a heavy, heavy space to be in, but to know that you can go through it and and that there's someone that not only knows but cares and that can help and share some insights. Um, I just want to say thank you. And I thank you because I know the questions that you asked help the people that are listening right now. And uh, maybe they'll share some of that information as they go out into the world as well. So. Absolutely. Play it forward. Thanks. Thanks for um, sharing your time with us. Absolutely. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm her husband, Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we can help. Or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, drop us a line. Or you could just say hi. Now, to find out more about us, more about my dad, Roger, or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.